Hey, what's up, guys? I know it's been a minute, but guess what? We're coming back stronger than ever. Season three starts now. What's up, guys? This is another episode of the Rayshon Gatson Anime Podcast, or RGAP for short. And on today's episode, we're going to be interviewing Marlene Sharp. She is a producer, writer, director, creative executive, consultant, micro-influencer. And we're going to be learning more about her life and her influence in animation. So if that has you interested, then sit back and enjoy the ride. Before we get started with the interview, I wanted to give you a moment to introduce yourself and tell us about your favorite anime. Sure. Well, first of all, um, I am the dog mother of Blanche Dubois Sharp, who is right here and wants to introduce herself. She does prefer to go first, so oh, that's, okay. that's why you can hear her. Um, <laughs> she's so naughty. I think because... Um, We've had many Zooms today, and often she calls the time limit. You know, she'll say, this is the last Zoom, and she did that a few hours ago. So I, I apologize. But anyway, um, hi, my name is Marlene Sharp, and I'm Blanche Dubois Sharp's mother. Um, and I am the proprietor of a small production company called Pink Poodle Productions, which is basically Blanche and me. And um, we are based in Los Angeles, and we work a lot in animation. I have a history in um, merchandise-driven entertainment, so a lot a lot of big brands that have media content, such as Sonic the Hedgehog, Pink Panther, Postman Pat, a lot of P properties. I also worked with Paul McCartney at one time. And, oh, that's amazing. Uh, <laughs> well, I'll let you be the judge of that. If you want me to talk more about Paul McCartney, I'll let you know. Um, but <clears throat> yeah, so um, so right now I've got a, a few things going on, and I'm grateful that you, Rayshawn, find me interesting enough to be on the podcast, although I'm expecting you to kick me off any minute now because Blanche will be quiet. <laughs> We're just going to try to do our best to see what happens. You know what I mean? Okay. I might just get up and meander a little bit to, to try to catch her. She's she's very small and fast. And she thinks it's a game when I try to catch her during the Zooms. Um, so uh, anyway, don't mind me. I'm glad we're not recording the video. Hopefully this is humorous and entertaining for everyone listening. For sure, for sure. Um, oh, what your favorite anime? Oh, my favorite anime. I'm so sorry. Okay, so my favorite anime is Speed Racer. I grew up with Speed Racer. It's like the old, old, old school Speed Racer was just my favorite. Before I was even old enough to know what anime was, I loved it. And um, it's always stuck with me. And I guess I'm not alone in that because I I believe a (laughs) lot of people still love Speed Racer. Yeah. And um and then also then in second place are all the other animes that I've worked on. So I've done a lot of work in localizing and um a- adapting Japanese intellectual properties for non-Japanese audiences. Sometimes that involves dubbing, sometimes it involves recutting footage and telling new stories for a variety of reasons. So um so I I worked Three years ago at a company called Level 5, and uh, all those animes were <laughs> favorites. Yokai Watch and the Leighton Detective series and Inazuma okay. 11 Eris and uh, okay. Snack World, which was actually, it's on Crunchyroll. It's a CGI show, but it's very anime influenced. It doesn't look anime, but it has the spirit of anime. So all, all those are, all of those are my children. <laughs> Now that that just kind of made me uh, reminded me of something. You um you guys said um on a different podcast documentary you were saying something about you were working on Dragon Ball, kind of making that to a live action thing. Oh, okay. So that <clears throat> that's a a weird and old story it goes almost 
back before time, I one of my first jobs in the industry was at a company called Renaissance Atlantic Films. And I worked for a gentleman who is really a pioneer in um, bringing anime outside of Japan into the rest of the world. And one of his greatest achievements was bringing Power Rangers out, out of Japan. Um, he was an, uh, was the president of Bandai America, which is the U.S. arm of Bandai Namco Japan. And so, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, he um, he his name is Frank Ward. He um, is not really in the business anymore. He's retired, but. It's only just recently, like recently in the last four years, that there's been a renewed interest in things that he worked on because he's very elusive. So I worked for him um, a long time ago. We won't say how many years, but uh, (laughs) he, he had had a long career before I even went to work for him. And so one of the jobs that I had while I, I worked for him for like five and a half years, and one of my tasks toward the end was to compile his greatest shows that he produced um, because he was retired from Bandai at that time, but he still consulted Bandai. But um, he wanted me to go through all of his, he had like old tapes and DVDs and CDs. I mean like all kinds of stuff and go through and, and make a demo reel of, of his greatest achievement. And so, um, so I worked with an editor to put that together. It was a quite an undertaking to, to screen all this material and Dragon Ball is one of the shows that he worked on to, um, try to adapt it for Western audiences. So what would happen is, um, after Frank was such a success with Power Rangers, um, yeah, sure. Well, let's see. I think he was president of Bandai America for about eight years and then he retired, but Bandai retained him as a, an exclusive consultant. And okay. so, so that's when I worked for him when he was retained as an exclusive consultant. But essentially we were both Bandai employees because they, they paid our, Bandai paid our salaries, but we were based okay. in, Lo- in Los Angeles and, um, we were managing all of the properties that Bandai would make the toys for, but then another company, Saban Entertainment, was the production company, and we were the liaison between those two, and we had to make sure that all the toy interest, all of Bandai's toy interest was being served as the productions and, and, and before production development would happen. So... um so Dragon Ball was something that, and another thing that was an important part of Frank's job is that we would get all this footage of cartoons that were popular in Japan, and they would just send us stuff. It, it wouldn't be subtitled or dubbed or anything. It would just be like it would be like the on-air version. So it would still have the advertisements from Japan in it and everything. And we would That's just get, we'd get this stuff. And a lot of it, to me, without without understanding Japanese and also without understanding that mode of storytelling at the time, it seemed just like stream of consciousness gobbledygook of all of the story. And, and it was like up to us. To, and the, their question to us would be, what can we do with this? What can we do with this outside of Japan? And so Bandai's goal was to sell the toys outside of Japan. And um <clears throat> and so the the media which were the TV series that was always a form of advertising. That was um that's all it was. They weren't necessarily trying to make money. Uh, I mean, of course it was it was gravy. From the TV shows they Yeah, if they could if they could get some money from that, great. But it it was essentially an alternative to making commercials. Toys. Yeah, because when you make a TV commercial, that's a sunk cost. The commercial will be stale very quickly thereafter, and yeah. no one will license it, or it's highly unlikely that anybody's going to pay the IP owner a fee to use it as entertainment. I mean, it's it's just like something that is very direct in its messaging, like buy this product and then and yeah. then, like if it's a seasonal commercial, the shelf life is even shorter because it's only for the Christmas season or 
you know, only for, um, mm, okay. you know, whatever, whatever, whatever season it is, summer, summer break. And, um, and so, uh, so a, a while ago, um, this evolved over time, but toy companies started, they would still make TV commercials, but they realized that kids like to imitate the fun stuff that they saw characters doing on TV. I mean, and you can see that even that if, makes sense. if you think as far back as like Westerns on TV and little kids would watch the Westerns and they go, pew, pew, pew. <laughs> they would just, yeah. they just do it naturally. So somewhere down the line, people observed this behavior and applied it to toys and it sure enough worked. And so, so that's the idea. But, and it's still that way today where, um, most of the kids content that you see is really trying to drive consumer behavior to purchase either toys or video games or some other form of, of business because, um, the way that the kids entertainment business is it, it yeah that's the way it's monetized it's not it's not the same as the grown up business where um that content grown up content can command a lot of dollars up front just for license fees based on like the stars who are in it or you okay. know the director or directors or writers or producers or something like that but kids content the license fees are small and it still costs a lot to produce it so it's really not a good business model it's it's actually a money losing business unless you unless you're you a sell those toys yeah or or unless you're a charity and you're just doing it for fun or you're you're very wealthy <laughs> you don't need any more money and you're just making it for fun which happens every so often i guess but most times it's a it's part of a business plan and the makers want to earn their earn a return on their investment. So, um, okay. yeah. So that's a little a little lesson <laughs> about merchandise driven entertainment. For my first question, I wanted to ask you what basically got you interested in the entertainment industry, and what made you decide this was going to be your career path. Well. I was just born this way. I don't know what happened when my mom was expecting me, but um, something happened because nobody else in the family really turned out quite as weird and, uh, and um, I don't know, unpredictable in some ways that I did. But um, seemed like a I, fun person to me. <laughs> I guess it was just a desperate need for attention, really, because my my original goal was to perform. And even when I was a little kid, my parents have recordings of me saying, only I'm on the stage, you be in the audience. And I would command people to <laughs> watch whatever it was that I was doing. It wasn't necessarily it didn't necessarily have entertainment value, but <laughs> I was very bossy. And so, um, so I grew up, I grew up in New Orleans and at the time there really wasn't show business in, in New Orleans, not the way you would. It, now there's a lot of location shooting that happens there. But when I grew up, it was, it hadn't, it hadn't gotten to that point yet. So, um, Thanks, um, pretty much everybody else in the town is. I never really fit in very well there because I'm not a sports fan and I don't oh, drink. Okay. So, um, so I'm Ooh. sorry. I can see by your hat that you are an avid football <laughs> fan, if nothing else. So Saints fan, I was oh. definitely aware of the Saints. My dad and my brother were huge fans of Saints LS and LSU. Um, Mm-hmm. Not so much me, but anyway, my original goal was to perform, and then it it morphed after I uh, after I had some years of hard knocks and rejections, I guess, as a performer, and um, and yeah, that's that's the the nuts and bolts of it. Cause yeah, I was um, cause you had sent me a documentary, and I heard you basically say that you basically said you wanted to start it off doing like acting, like live action stuff. Then you kind of got into animation, and I was oh, I thought that was kind of interesting. But then you said something I thought was really interesting when you were saying you weren't really interested in anime in the beginning. <laughs> that's right. That's so I was like, oh, oh, right. 
And you know what? What, what, I'll, what? I'll tell you something. That made people who watched the documentary angry. I don't know if you looked at the comments, but some people didn't even name me by name. They were just like, that woman, only she's just a wannabe actress, and she, she, uh, you know, was resentful that she didn't, she didn't, re- she didn't reach her goal of being an actress. And actually, that's kind of true. <laughs> I mean, it's, not, it's not all based. Um, I, I'm not going to lie. I, I did foresee for, for myself more of a career in line with Tina Fey and Mindy Kaling, Reese Witherspoon, Carol Burnett, like the great women of comedy. Um, and certainly, I would love to make that kind of money. I'll tell you that adapting animated <clears throat> cartoons from Japan does not command the same kind of fee as someone who's starring in movies and writing their own uh, material and getting it made into TV shows and movies. Not not the same at all. Um, <clears throat> as far as... It might uh, be about the same amount of work, though. Oh, I would say that <laughs> adapting cartoons from other countries for Western audiences especially is even more work. And people don't mm. even know, uh, fans don't know the half of it because when a fan watches something, it, it oftentimes looks like the people behind the scenes are, are disrespecting the source material and just trying to be contrarians by willfully putting new elements of the story in there. But I am here to assure you that that is not the case. Um, what happens is that a lot of times the content is it, it'll come from Japan, let's say, and okay. um, and the the a broadcaster, let's say in France, will want to air the show because it's super popular in Japan. This is what happened with Yokai Watch, um, <clears throat> and also Snack World too that I worked on at, at Level Five. So let's say the French broadcaster is really interested in it, but there are things in and they're they're willing to pay a fee, and then there's a, a um, another company that wants to take all the toys and sell them in France. It's like a big business deal. But there are requirements for shows that need children's shows that need to be on the air that are on the air. And censorship. In Yes. And and um we don't call it censorship. We have a sugar coated way of it's standards and practices. That's that's what <laughs> that I think Disney invented that word because Disney standards and practices are very strict. But most countries have their own um idea of what qualifies as kids entertainment. So what is kid and family friendly in Japan? Not necessarily in the US, in France in the UK and Latin America or what have you. And and sometimes it'll be just like maybe one little scene in one episode. And then sometimes it'll be a whole episode that is objectionable. For example, um, with Yokai Watch, there was a whole 15 minute. Yeah, I think it was a 15, one entire 15 minute episode about boys running around naked on a beach and um and then some girls walk up and the girls are teasing the boys about their anatomy and then yokai come into the picture and it's all it's an entire episode about kids making fun of each other's body parts while they're naked. We cut that entire episode. There was nothing we could do to make it kid friendly anywhere except for in in Japan apparently it was okay because it was all done <laughs> good fun and it was like I mean I guess you do see little kids running around naked on the beach but there's we, yeah, just, a, we couldn't do it we just couldn't do it and so like if the fans found out <clears throat> I don't know if this is common knowledge with the Yokai Watch fan base but if the fans found out oh level 5 cut that out of the order for Disney you know Disney ordered a season but we had to cut that episode the fans would probably be upset oh it's censorship oh you know the, there's the, it's this conspiracy between level 5 and Disney blah 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 but that's not not the reason at all and uh, oftentimes it would be very painful for us at Disney or not so much at Sega because the stuff that I was working on at Sega came from 
the U.S. It was U.S. developed rather than Japanese developed. But uh, certainly when I was working with Bandai, um, if it came, if it originated and, like, was recorded in another language and it was really, like, authentic content to another country, um, sometimes, like, that would be a pivotal episode for the toys. Like, it might introduce a new vehicle or a new gadget or a new character, and then there'd be like mm. some naked character in it that was like, <laughs> so then we'd have to tell a new story. We'd have to recut the footage to cut, you know, cut out that part. Make it person. We'd have to make it make sense. And because we, what are we going to do? Just not, we can't have that gap in the story because the, the whole exercise hinges on selling this one toy, this one special kind of yokai watch or whatever. And so, um, and sometimes it is, and then, then it becomes even more difficult because to sell the toy, you know, you need, you need to introduce it properly in the episode or what have you. But because a company like level five owns that intellectual property, they have to approve all the changes that we make. Like I was working for level five in the U S but we couldn't just make changes to the episodes willy nilly and then just send it to Disney. We'd have to come up with ideas and send it to Hino-san who is the owner of level five who created Yokai watch. And, um, and not only did Hino-san have to approve of the changes, but uh, there's also different (laughs) music, music, I guess you would call it music rights um, in in Japan where composers have like final approval on uh, if their song is performed in an episode, they need creative approval too. So we had several levels. So we, sometimes we would come up with the, we thought these clever ingenious ways of, you know, cutting around the things that wouldn't pass standards and practices. And we'd be so proud. And then we send it to, the headquarters and, and sometimes maybe like Hino-san would sign off on it and then a composer would hate the translation that we did on one of the songs. So then we have to unravel everything. We have to hire a new composer. We'd have to, you know, I mean, it was just, it's so tedious. And so I, I understand like, especially reading the comments on this uh, Saint Seiya documentary that I was just in. Mm-hmm. Um, I read the hostile comment. Of course, the hostile comments stick out to me. I mean, there are hundreds of really nice comments, mostly about the filmmaker Raymona, who did an excellent job on this documentary. <clears throat> um, but to me, uh, my sensitive nature zeroes in on all the negativity. And so it, 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 it's frustrating because I want people to know that those of us who worked on it behind the scenes, we love these properties too. And we try so hard to preserve the, the original spirit of it and everything. But sometimes it just like, it's a business. That's, that's what it boils down to. And it's not about anybody's passion or philanthropy or fans. Or I mean, it is, it is about the fans. Of course, if people didn't buy the products, then there would be no point in doing any of it. But um, sometimes for the greater good of selling products, certain things in the, in the original content needs to go. So it's, 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 uh, it's very, it's very complicated and not really like making any other kind of, of grown up content. You know, it's not like, Oh, we're going to, we're going to offend people. So we better beep this out. It goes beyond that because it's supposed, and when you sell something as kids content, um, the advantage is so, so there's a lot of very old school thinking in the toy business and toy companies that take on a license to make and distribute toys are very risk averse. So you will see far more toys that are wholesome and not controversial and just like appeal to a wide age group rather Makes than sense. something like Five Nights at Freddy's or, you know, mm. like that's going to be more niche, even though it seems like, oh, it's got a ton of fans. Well, not according to the toy industry. The toy industry wants to offend the least amount of people so that the most people will buy it. And so in order for a content company 
um, or a toy company, because a lot of the shows just come from the toy companies. It's it's easier for a toy company to, uh, in a lot of ways, it's easier for them to make their own content because then they know how to present it properly so that it's, it checks all the boxes. But, um, okay. but yeah, it, um, uh, I kind of forgot my train of thought, but anyway, it's really hard. That's, <laughs> that's the bottom line. It's hard. It. And please be kind to your people who adapt these cartoons because it's hard work and, and nobody has bad intentions. Everybody wants to do the right thing. Yeah, I think we all kind of figured that. But, you know, there's always that shock when you see the original versus the one you see. And you're like, wait a minute, that whole scene's not there. I've yeah. had that happen a few times. But with you explaining it, it makes a lot more sense. <laughs> My second question would be is, could you tell us what the Pink Poodle Productions is? And basically, what projects have you been a part of? Yeah, so Pink Poodle Productions is is my company that I I started it just as a website when I was working at Sega, so probably like in 2017, just okay. just as a glorified resume, really, just to have a place, a landing page, or a landing page plus some extras of things that I worked on as a writer, producer, or creative executive. And um, so I set up the website, and then um, then I left Sega and went to work at Level 5, and then... At the end of 2019, I lost my job at Level 5 because Level 5 decided to close all their offices outside Japan. So they had an office in L.A., they had an office in Seoul, Korea, and they had another office in Hong Kong. And essentially, Hino-san just only wanted to be in the Japanese business. And I think Dentsu also, Dentsu had invested in his company, and I think Dentsu was happy enough with the profits that they were making in Japan that they, they didn't need the extra expense of, like, his stuff, his content is so successful in Japan. It's they enough. didn't need American money. Yeah, one. they didn't. It was more of a headache for everybody to deal with the three offices that weren't in Japan, which was very sad for those of us who worked for the company and yeah. we were outside of Japan. So I lost my job and I didn't have any other job waiting for me. So I decided that, okay, Pink Poodle Productions will be my job. And I did, I was fortunate to have some um, consulting opportunities, some freelance projects and consulting opportunities that I was able to jump into right away. And so I thought, well, I'll just run those through Pink Poodle Productions and the, those those are my clients and you know this this is what I'll do and then I'll pursue working for um a full-time job as well and see see how that goes. And um so that's what I did. And okay. um So you worked a full a regular full-time job? Well, so so I started out working with a, a couple of clients. Um, I was working for, I had a client called Toonbo, which was a preschool, a preschool YouTube channel that did really well. And, um, and they were expanding at the time. I was a consulting producer for Toonbo. And so the, the, um, the content had started in Korea or with a Korean creator. And then, um, some investors from the U.S. became involved, and then they wanted to expand the brand and do new things with it. So that was that was one of my first clients post level five. And then I was doing some consult, some script consulting. Um, what else? Because I because I I'm also a writer, so I write scripts and help people develop pitch materials. Like if you if you want to create a TV show and then go pitch it to Netflix or Cartoon Network, there's a or any any anywhere where you you would be looking for a stakeholder or a platform to show, you know, to show your work and also to have investors. There's a certain way that the industry is accustomed to reviewing yeah. that sort of material, doc, uh, PowerPoint presentations, sample scripts, um, you know, certain hoops that one must jump Go through. To. Okay. So I, I do consulting on that. So that's how, that's what happened at, at 
in the fall of 2019. And then um, one of my clients that I started working with in the fall of 2019 was Rainshine Entertainment. It, it, it was, it, anyway, it, it went through a couple of name changes, but anyway, they started out as a client and now I, I am actually full time with Rainshine, but I still keep my website up there because one never knows what the future will bring. And then also I, I do a lot of um, pro bono consulting, consulting. and, um, and also um, I, you know, I, you, oh, excuse right, me. Article. You wrote some uh, article. You said something about like negotiating too. So do you negotiate like contracts and deals and stuff like that too? Yes. Yes. And I, I'm not a lawyer, but okay. I, I did work at Disney for a couple of years in business and legal affairs as a, a legal assistant. So I have that in my, a couple of years under my belt as a, as a paralegal essentially. And, um, and because I've worked for a lot of overseas companies as either their sole representative in the U S or part of a very mm. small team in the U S oftentimes I'm either one of the only native English speakers or the only native English speaker. So, when that happens, I I really do need to wear many hats, <clears throat> and um, so that business and legal affairs is one of them. So I just I I had to get good at it because it was just expected of me that I would be able to just just be able to do strictly, that. Yeah, strictly by being a native English speaker, it made me more qualified than anybody else in the company because I could at least speak English. That was something that, you know, like when I worked for a Korean studio where, um, yeah, I was the only person in, in Los Angeles. Everybody else was in Seoul. So, and mm, and okay. Korean was the first language of everybody else but me. So, um yeah, so then I just I just had to do it. I had to learn learn as I went along and um and it's good though because it's it's helped me negotiate for myself. Although I'm really a terrible negotiator for myself. Like I'm not gonna I, I'm like I, I'm the worst person to negotiate for myself, but at least I understand <laughs> the language. I understand yeah. how I'm getting screwed <laughs> as opposed to um, just you know, being being screwed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just the yeah. It's not. It's not. <laughs> I think we all over. We undersell our ourselves because you know we just either we want to get the job or we just don't know how much we're worth. You know, I think that's basically those two things about that. Yeah, and it's hard if you if you rely on yourself to make a living, and you if you need to work for a living, then. At a yeah. certain point, you, you can only hold out so long and you don't really have a lot of negotiating power when you need the work. Yeah. And especially with your type of field, because it seems like you, you find a lot of different stuff and try to make it over here in America. So you're not actually like creating the anime. So it, it's probably harder for you because you got to be able to get the, the get the, um, the, the project. Then you got to get the green light over here so that it can be made into, and then to, just to make money. So that's probably a whole longer process than any of this. So I can give you your props for that because that's a lot of work. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Rayshawn. You're, you're very generous. <laughs> I guess especially for a field that you didn't really have interest in, but be, got interested to it. I mean, I, I find that really interesting because me personally, I, I just started doing dental. Um, I got into the dental industry. It wasn't something I chose from the beginning, but it was something I said, let me just step into and see what I do and how I feel about it. And right now, I'm liking it right now. That's great. Yeah. And I think, I think if people, if people waited until they did something that appealed to them, they would miss a lot of opportunities. Like if, because things often don't seem appealing when you first look at the. I mean, I know that with dating is true. <laughs> for sure. A, a guy won't appeal to me until I've gone out with them for a year or several. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I was thinking um, maybe three days. A whole year. I'm <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm joking, but not that much. <laughs> but you know, like it t sometimes it takes a while or, or so, 
sometimes to realize what your ability is. Like sometimes you might have a talent for something, but just because you've never tried it, you don't know that you're good at it. So that's so um, I would have never thought that I was working, that I'd be working in cartoons because that's not what I studied in school. It wasn't like I was opposed to it. I just didn't know. I, I enjoyed, like I said, I enjoyed watching Speed Racer, but I didn't even realize that was anime at the time. I just See, that's it. a lot of people. They've watched anime, but don't even know they've watched it. Yeah. And then they'd be like, oh, okay, that's what that was. Because that's me at first when... I started watching Pokemon as a kid, and then when I learned later on, like, Pokemon's an anime, I was like, oh, I, I never knew that. Like, I really never knew that. So I can understand that. Yeah, yeah. And then that was another, like, what you said, I realized when I started working in the business behind the scenes, it, it opened my eyes to all kinds of things. And also... Now, one thing that I've loved my whole life is toys. I've loved collecting toys and playing with toys still. Um, now, truth be told, I like girl toys better than toy <laughs> toys. Uh, I've always been a Barbie lover and collector, and um, I love, like, fashion dolls. and um, But I also love baby dolls and, and just, like, anything that's cute and clever, especially, like, miniatures, which is something that, like the Japanese toy industry is so good at making tiny things so realistically and painting them beautifully. And, um, and so I did get those collectible things. I can't think of what they're called, but I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. This is, there's, there's so much. And, um, so I didn't realize how influential, the toy industry was on the entertainment business and vice versa. There's, there's um, a very, very close link. And, um, and so that's what I learned when I ended up at this company, Renaissance Atlantic. And it was just a fluke. I was temping. I was, uh, I was temping at the (laughs) time. I, I needed the work. um, And I, I had done some production work as a, production coordinator and when I um I was an agent assistant for a little bit I mean I had like some short-term jobs here and there but um but I was registered with a temp agency that gave me a short-term assignment with Frank's company Renaissance Atlantic so I temped there for two weeks and then he offered me the full-time job and then I was there I ended up being there for five and a half years Dang, that's amazing. It's yeah. about connections and meeting people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I'm not going to say that it was five, five and a half years a bed of roses. Uh, that, that's that, what I wanted to kind of ask you, because it seemed like you, you don't really <laughs> want to say how you felt about Frank or what your relationship was. It's exactly. kind of like a, mm, okay. I know. My, my boyfriend actually got on my case <laughs> about that. But um, I'm saving the real the real good stuff for my tell-all memoir someday, so I'm okay, not going to spill the beans here, but I will. all I'll say is that it wasn't a bed of roses, and um, I think, like, in the last few years, people, especially people in the entertainment business, have become more um, forthcoming about things that they have experienced, like they're paying the dues mm. as they okay. climb up the ladder and, and so forth. And, uh, and, and I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, I was assaulted or there was criminal behavior or anything like that. So, so I'm okay. You know, that, don't you worry. (laughs) There's not any accusations against anybody coming out, but it's just. So nobody. Right, Frank, saying that no, no, she didn't say he did anything to her. <laughs> and it, exactly. I'm not saying anything like that. And, and I was Frank's only employee, but I didn't just work with Frank. Like, we... Okay. I got, yeah, and that was, a, that was something else I don't think that came through in the documentary either, was that I did interface with a lot of people at Bandai, at Saban Entertainment, at the Fox Kids Network, um... Gosh, there were a lot of people that, that I interacted with. <clears throat> so, um, so there's a lot more to it than what comes across in the documentary. Um, but, uh, but it wasn't, you know, not just the, the documentary. It's just uh, my whole career 
it's also, I, I hate to be cliche, but it's very difficult to be a woman in the industry, especially in the, this I might, believe that. this might not be the politically correct thing to say, but if one isn't the prettiest girl, um, if you're not the girl that the guys are attracted to, at least if the guys are attracted to you, want to date you, uh, you have yeah, some chance true. of, you have some, you have some power there. But if you're just the smart girl and the hard worker and the, uh, but they're not attracted to you, they will think nothing of kicking you to the curb before, before mm-hmm. anything. There won't even be any moves made. It's just, you're not you, you. It doesn't matter. You're gone. Yeah, okay. yeah. So in a way, it's kind of like, wow. I mean, it, it, at least you have a chance. At least you have a chance to change your your fate if somebody finds you to be the prettiest that's girl right. or the. And I know that's not a consolation for the, those who have had horrible, horrendous experiences. But I've mostly had the experience of not being the most popular. And, um, you know, that, that, that's been more, more of my experience. So, so, but it's still tough, whether you're the most desired, like Marilyn Monroe, or whether you're the quirky girl like me, it's, I don't think any, any woman in the business just breezes through. I think, um, and women who are successful oftentimes develop a very thick skin and a tough – they have some Shale. kind of strength. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, – and all this is just When you said thing. that, when you said that, I thought you were going to go a different route and was going to say more like a cultural thing because some of these countries where – like Japan where the man has seen more value than the woman. Woman. So I thought that's kind of the way you were going to go about that. But I can understand what you're saying, especially working in an office with probably a bunch of men. Yeah, I, can, I can see that. You're right, though. That's absolutely correct. I, I remember um, um, when I when I worked for the Korean studio on one of my trips to Korea, this was a real this pretty much this was a big uh, aha moment for me. We I was with the I was the only woman and the only the only Westerner in a large group. And I think we were in transit. We were going from one office to another. And there was a big group of us. And we, we all got out of like a shuttle bus type of thing and walked into an office and everybody stopped. And all the dudes were waiting for me to open the door for them. Like, like I was supposed to be the one to, instead of having the good manners, no. me as a woman, they just stopped and waited for me, like, okay, we're ready for you to open the door. It was very awkward. <laughs> and I don't know if that's typical or not, but, um, but that, that's what happened. And so, uh, so I, I was confused by that. And, um, the, after my first trip to Korea, cause that, my first trip to Korea was the first time I had ever, I had gone to Mexico once on a day trip, but I'd never been outside of the U.S. Otherwise, so, um, and I, I didn't, it it happened kind of quickly, so I didn't research the customs or anything very much. And, uh, I got there and there were quite a few experiences that were a little bit head, of head scratchers. And so then when I came back, I, I don't know, I attributed it to myself like, oh, I'm so high maintenance or like I'm an ugly American or whatever. But then I, I, found somebody else that I knew who had had a lot of international business experiences. I was explaining this to him and he's like, of course, he's like, of course, he's like, you're a Western woman in an Asian country. He's like, I'm surprised like this, this and this didn't happen to you. He's like, he's like, I'm surprised they even hired you. He's like, this is amazing. And, and, um, and, uh, and then after that experience, I I got that a lot because like when I when I worked for Frank, uh, Frank's American, and so so okay. I, I worked in in the office with him a lot, and and we would have only uh, sporadic contact with the Japanese, but it wasn't mm-hmm. until I worked for the Korean studio, which was a few years later, um, that I really had experience working overseas, and then since then I've worked with. I've worked with several Korean studios. I worked for a Jordanian studio for 
about five years. And then, um, then I worked for level five in Sega, which both were Japanese companies. And then Rainshine is, um, an Indian company that I work for now. So all different kinds of international experience. And, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot, a lot to learn about other cultures. Okay. Well, I know I only got you for about 10 more minutes, so I'm probably going to try to um, ask you one or two more questions. Okay. Um, as I'm going with the Sonic question right now, I wanted to know basically how did you get into that and, like, what, what did you know about Sonic before you got into it? So I um, I started working for uh, Sega and Sonic in 2015. Okay. And a recruiter just found me on LinkedIn. I was working for the Jordanian company, RGH Entertainment, at the time. And okay. not going to lie. their job for a variety of reasons. And <clears throat> anyway, um, but <laughs> I hadn't, I didn't know that, uh, that Sega was starting a, a new office in Los Angeles. I was just contacted by a recruiter on LinkedIn. I'm, pretty active on LinkedIn. So I, I hope that makes me more visible to people who want to hire me. But anyway, I got this random call and um, then I did have like 10 or so interviews after that, but I didn't have to, at least I didn't, I was spared having to send my resume in through some diabolical black hole on the internet. But um, I was familiar <laughs> with Sonic before that because coincidentally, um, I, the company that I was working for, RGH Entertainment, we had tried to partner with Sega on Sonic Boom, and um, okay. I had pursued that pretty hard on on behalf of RGH. We the 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 cartoon, the the um the animated series version, as opposed to Sonic Boom, the games, and uh, so that company, RGH, wanted to be a co production partner, and it turned out that Sega chose a different co-production partner in um, Technicolor, but I was really familiar with the development of Sonic Boom and all of that, and then this opportunity came along, and so, um, so yeah, and I ended up getting the job. And That's crazy, especially yeah. um, getting it from LinkedIn, because I have a LinkedIn profile, but I've never really thought that they actually did anything, so <laughs> that's oh, amazing, yeah. so everybody... <laughs> Keep your LinkedIn's update. You never know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, that kind of goes into my last question is basically, do you have any tips or suggestions for people who wants to get into like the um, entertainment industry through animation? Like, is there a way they can find jobs or what's like the expected salary? Oh, expect zero. Off. Expect zero dollars. <laughs> <laughs> expect to do it because you love it and that, that anything you get is like a reward. Um, you know, like it, it's like a present or a gift from the universe. Truly, I, I think I, w I would reconsider my whole entire life if I had to do it over again. I'd probably be like a crime scene investigator because I love true crime and I feel like a forensic scientist of some sort would have been like a more stable yet fulfilling path for me but anyway but if you do if you want to do entertainment or animation and you're totally determined then um i would suggest staying open-minded about any kind of possibility because even if you're working let's say you're working for a dental office i'm just going to use you rayshawn as, as an example okay let's say you have okay. a, a secret desire to be an animation uh an animator or something like that or what if you had a secret desire to be a podcaster well you're doing it you, you everybody can have a side hustle right um even if you're not supposed to i didn't say this but i've heard you can have a sneaky side hustle. <laughs> you know, there are ways that you can get around it. And um, you just you just do it on, on you just put it out there. And and a job that you have, you can you can turn it into something else. Like, for example, maybe the dental office that you work for, maybe they need to do some marketing and maybe you can do some commercials for them or you could 
you know, you could create a little animated character that they could put on their website or there's always some little way you can figure out show business into whatever you're doing because most businesses need advertising, even if it's a nonprofit, they need it probably even more than than commercial businesses because they don't have the same kind of machine behind them that that a for profit company is doing. So so keep even if you you know if you're working at at, at I don't know if where you're working you can volunteer to do stuff and that that would help either your present employer or you could do stuff on your own time and then also just be nice to everybody and be friendly to everybody like no matter where you are even if it's like a long line at target or something um and that's something i learned from my mom because she and my my grandma too because they used to organize play groups for my brother and me just from people that they'd meet at the grocery store they would talk to everybody at the grocery store they and they were genuinely interested in everybody's business. So it wasn't like it didn't come across as fake. It might have been slightly dangerous, I guess, but at the time, no one realized that. <laughs> but, uh, but nothing happened to us. We're still here. But, I mean, just like being friendly and respectful to everybody, everybody loves to be validated. And if you can, if you can just be nice to people, then... I, I think that's that's more conducive to helping yourself in all aspects of life than being rude or even dismissive. Even dismissive thinking like this person has nothing to offer me, therefore I won't give them the time of day. I think that's not a good way to go through life or career. So anyway, I mean, I wish I had the secret sauce to being a huge... <laughs> I wish I could share that with you, but I'm still looking for that secret sauce. As I told you, I'm not Tina Fey, so maybe you could have her on the show and she could give the secret, the recipe of <laughs> the secret sauce. <laughs> with that we end today's episode i want to thank everyone for listening and also if there are any new listeners you hear that if you are a new listener if this is the first episode you've ever listened to please like and subscribe wherever you are listening also if you look below i'll have all marlene sharp's information below so if you have any questions you want to ask her ask her about her jobs and things she has done with animation go ahead and send her a message peace